you find yourself needing to learn more about D&D. What do you do? I cast Pond! Welcome to iCast Pod, a D&D podcast about creating characters, taking chances, rolling dice, and having fun. I'm Mike, your DM and guide to all things Dungeon-esque and Dragony. In this episode, we're talking about Harpers, Halflings, Druids, Elminster, but not dragons. Listen on to find out why. Heard any good rumours lately? There's been no major news in the world of Dungeons and Dragons, although there is new content over at the Stay at Home, Play at Home page. Check the show notes for the link. Uh, so free resources, new adventures, and things like that. Check it out. Off to the races. Halflings. Small in stature but large of heart, halflings enjoy a good meal, a blazing hearth, good drink, and good conversation. Lovers of peace and home comforts, some halflings live in remote agricultural communities, while others, tempted by the wonders of new lands and new foods, form nomadic travelling societies constantly moving in their caravan of covered wagons or boats, chasing the horizon. Thought of by most other races as plucky, lucky and deft, the halflings, or hin, are nimble and courageous, sometimes beyond their apparent means. Halfling tales are often peppered with lucky escapes and narrow squeaks. Like Tolkien's hobbits, D&D halflings in general stand about three feet tall, which makes them smaller than most other races, including gnomes. This, along with their stout nature, tends to make them less than intimidating for the most part, which has led to them surviving for centuries by going either unnoticed, or at the very least appearing as no threat to anybody else. Their complexion ranges from pale and ruddy to tan, and they usually sport brown or sandy brown wavy hair. Brown or hazel eyes are common and males often sport bushy sideburns with beards being less common and moustaches being rare among them. They like brightly coloured clothes that favour comfort and function over style. In fact, they are a generally practical and pragmatic race in general, their main concerns being occupied with basic needs rather than frippery and ostentation. Halflings have a knack for finding straightforward solutions to problems and don't have much time or patience for dithering. Wealth is not flaunted in halfling society, rather kept away in a cellar or other secret place. Halflings are a happy and cheerful lot for the most part and try to get on with everyone, other races included. They dislike generalisations, particularly negative ones, so tend to take people on an individual basis. They cherish their families and friends above all, and their home comforts second. Halfling adventurers usually take to the life through wanderlust, curiosity, or sometimes for reasons of community or friendship. The adventuring life is usually seen more as an opportunity than a career. The discovery of new things, even a new dish or style of clothing, is a big draw for them. Halflings blend easily into societies of dwarves, elves or humans, making themselves valuable to their adopted community just as they would at home. Often they become so closely knit with these communities due to their friendly, easy-going nature and hard work 
that members of the society often wonder what life was like before their halfling friends arrived. Also, the halfling natural predilection to stealth, along with their unassuming bearing, allows them to pass unnoticed where attention is unwanted. They are loyal to friends as they would be to family, and work well in groups and can be a force to be reckoned with when their companions are threatened, to the surprise of many an enemy. As a rule, they are kind-hearted, giving and have a strong opposition to oppression of any kind. They hate to see suffering and are easily moved to pity. The generous nature leads them to share whatever they have, even in times of personal hardship. Their own communities tend to be rural farmsteads or well-kept groves, or as mentioned, groups of travellers. They don't go in for kingdoms or countries, preferring to look to their elders for governance, and to keep to their own shires in terms of land ownership. Traditions are preserved within families, and they don't usually have any caste system or hierarchy of nobility, and rarely recognise royalty among themselves. The halfling language, although not technically secret, is not normally shared with outsiders, possibly due to their rich oral traditions being their main way of recording their history. Stat block. As a halfling, you get a plus two to dexterity. Your alignment is usually lawful good. Your size is small, normally about three feet tall and around 40 pounds. Your speed is 25 feet. You have a feat called Lucky, which allows you to re-roll any natural one on an attack roll, ability check or saving throw, but you must use the second roll even if it's another nat one. You have the ability Brave, which gives you advantage on saving throws against being frightened. Nimble, you can move through any occupied square of any creature that is at least a size larger than you. And your languages are common and halfling. There are two sub-races listed in the player's handbook the Lightfoot and Stout, with Strongheart and Ghostwise as other variants in the Sword Coast's Adventurer's Guide. Lightfoots get a plus one to Charisma and a natural stealth ability that allows them to try to hide when obscured by a creature one size larger or more. Lightfoots tend to enjoy keeping moving, as their name suggests, either striking out alone or in small bands where the membership of individuals may shift over time as they drop in and out. They typically excel at navigation and travel tasks, such as foraging, sailing, cartwright work and more. Stout halflings get a plus one to constitution, as their name suggests, and have resilience that gives advantage on saving throws against poison and resistance to poison damage. Strong hearts have all the features of stouts, but tend to ingratiate themselves even more easily into other societies, with an intent to put down roots. Where the Lightfoot will breeze into communities, make friends and then leave on the next wind, strong hearts ingratiate themselves and often stay in an area for centuries. They are sometimes referred to by other races as the good folk, due to their affable nature, resistance to offence and incorruptible spirits. They have nimble hands and bags of patience. Coupled with their industrious nature, they make good weavers, potters, woodcarvers, basket makers, painters and farmers. Strong hearts often have blonde or black hair and blue or green eyes, unlike the generally brown tones of the Lightfoots. Ghostwise halflings are the rarest of the Hin subraces. They trace their ancestry to a war among halfling tribes that caused them to flee Lurian. That was so difficult to say. They are usually only found in Chondlewood and a few other isolated forests. 
They often choose a natural landmark as the centre point of their territories and members carry a piece of it with them at all times. Night gliders are clan warriors who bond with giant owls riding them into battle as mounts. Due to their reclusive nature, adventurer ghostwise are even rarer still. Ghostwise halflings get a plus one to wisdom and the silent speech ability allowing them to communicate telepathically with any one creature within 30 feet provided you share a language. You so classy. Druid. Druids are wardens of nature, revering the natural world and often eschewing city life. They see themselves as part of nature, a conduit for its will, an agent in preserving balance. This is one of the major charges a druid is tasked with, ensuring the elements, earth, air, fire and water, remain in a delicate equilibrium. An imbalance of power could result in the world being drawn into one of the elemental planes of existence or being destroyed entirely. Druids are opposed to elemental evil in all its forms and can be often found near places of elemental power, carefully observing that the balance is not disrupted. Druids revere nature in all its guises, accepting nature's inherent cruelty when it is necessary and promote ecology in all forms, helping tend that which sustains animal and plant life and thus the sentient races of Toril. This means that they are also opposed to that which is unnatural, such as aberrations like beholders and elithids, and any type of undead like zombies or vampires. Druids will lead raiding parties against such creatures, especially if they encroach on druidic territory or threaten the balance of nature. Druids gain power from nature either from a nature deity in a similar manner to a cleric, see last episode for info on clerics, or else from the force of nature itself. Many druids seek to gain a transcendent mystical connection with nature rather than a devotion to a deity, but others will directly serve gods. The ancient druidic traditions are sometimes referred to as the old faith, which sets them apart from priests and acolytes who worship in constructed shrines and temples, where a druid is more likely to be found practising their faith in a forest or meadow. Druid spells are of course nature-based, often displaying the power of tooth and claw, shifting tides, fire and storm. Druids have the ability to change shape, shifting into the form of a noble creature to fight. Some even prefer animal form and spend the majority of time in it. Just as an aside, My group played online for the first time the other night and our druid had the interesting notion of climbing a tree then using wild shape to transform himself into an ox, causing him to fall from the tree onto an enemy. Gravity is a force of nature after all, so that innovation has earned him an inspiration point. Things to consider when creating a druid. What has given them their close bond with nature? Were they brought up in the old faith? Raised by wolves? Or do they just find a calming affinity with wild spaces? Did they have an encounter with a nature spirit or did they have a spiritual journey where they met with a guardian animal like a giant eagle, bear or wolf? It could even be that they were born during a raging storm, were struck by lightning or affected by another natural event such as an earthquake or volcanic eruption that attuned them to the inherent power of nature. What made your druid take up the adventuring life? Was it to experience all that nature has to offer? to seek out spiritual places in the desert or tundra, to fight elemental evil or the unnatural forces in the world? 
Were you a caretaker of a sacred grove that was destroyed or defiled by aberrations from another plane? Stat block. Wisdom is the primary stat for druids, followed by constitution. For a quick build, choose these stats and the hermit background. Hit points at first level is 8 plus your constitution modifier. Hit points at higher levels is 1d8 or 5 plus your constitution modifier per level. Your hit dice is 1d8 per level. Proficiencies. Armour is light, medium and shields, which cannot be made from metal. Weapons include clubs, daggers, darts, javelins, maces, quarterstaffs or quarterstaves, either is correct. Scimitars, sickles, slings and spears. Tools, you get a herbalism kit. Your saving throws are intelligence and wisdom. Skills, you can choose two from arcana, animal handling, insight, medicine, nature, perception, religion and survival. And the equipment you start with is a wooden shield or any simple weapon, a scimitar or any simple weapon, leather armour, an explorer's pack and a druidic focus. You also know druidic, a secret language known only to druids, and can use this to send secret messages to other druids who will automatically spot it. Others can spot the message with a DC 15 perception wisdom check, but cannot decipher the message without the aid of magic. You know two cantrips of choice from the druid spell list and can learn additional ones at later levels. Your spellcasting ability is wisdom and draws on your attunement to nature. Your spell attack modifier is your wisdom modifier plus your proficiency bonus and your spell save DC is 8 plus your wisdom modifier plus your proficiency bonus. You can cast a druid spell as a ritual if the spell has the ritual tag and you have the spell prepared. You can use your druidic focus as a spell casting focus for your druid spells. At second level you gain wild shape, a major mechanic for druids giving them the ability to shift into an animal form. You must have seen the creature before and can use this twice between short or long rests. At second level you can only transform into walking beasts, no swimming or flying. At fourth level you can add swimming beasts but no flying. At 8th level, you can include flying beasts. You can remain in beast form for the number of hours equal to half your druid's level rounding down. So a level 3 druid can wild shape for an hour, for example. You can revert to normal form as a bonus action on your turn, or automatically revert if knocked unconscious, drop to 0 hit points, or die. The following rules apply to wild shape. You are limited by challenge rating as to which creatures you can transform into. At second level, it is a quarter challenge rating. At fourth level, this increases to a half, and at level eight, you can choose challenge rating one creatures. Your stats are replaced by those of the creature you become, but your personality and alignment remain the same, as do your intelligence, wisdom, and charisma scores. So you could become a charming snake rather than a snake charmer. Sorry. You also retain saving throw and skill proficiencies, as well as gaining those of the creature. If the creature's bonus is higher than yours, you use the creature's bonus score. You cannot use any legendary or lair actions the creature normally has. You get the creature's hit points and hit dice. When you revert form, you return to the hit points you had before you transformed, unless you revert automatically after being reduced to 0 HP, in which case any excess damage is taken from your normal total. So for example, 
if you have one hit point as the creature and take 10 damage, you automatically revert and take 9 damage. If your character had more than 9 hit points before transforming, you aren't knocked unconscious. You can't cast spells and can't speak or take actions involving hands unless you are some form of primate, otherwise you are limited by the capabilities of your beast form. Transforming does not break concentration on a spell already cast, however, or prevent you from taking actions as part of a spell you've already cast, such as Call Lightning. You retain the features of your class, race or other source and can use them provided your new form is capable of doing so. You cannot use a special sense while transformed, such as dark vision, unless the creature form you've transformed into also has that sense. You choose whether your equipment merges with you, is worn by your new form, or falls to the floor when you transform. Equipment does not change size, so there's no Hulk shorts option. If your new form cannot wear your, your gear physically, it must drop to the floor or merge with you. Anything that merges with you cannot be used and has no effects until you revert. At second level, you identify with a particular circle of druids, either the circle of the land or the moon in the player's handbook, with the circle of swords, the emerald enclave and the moonshade circles av available in the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide, and the circles of dreams and shepherd in Xanathar's Guide to Everything. Check the show notes for page numbers. The circle you choose adds additional features, such as an additional cantrip at second level for the circle of the land, or the ability to use wild shape as a bonus action and can expend a spell slot to regain 1d8 hit points per level of the spell slot expended for the circle of the moon. Listen to that again if it was unclear, I'm not quite sure I got it. At level 18, you age at a rate of 1 year per 10 years of time and can cast many of your spells while in wild shape form being able to perform the verbal and somatic components but not material. At level 20, you can use Wild Shape any number of times. Background Check Sage As a sage, you should know your stuff. Sages spend years studying the lore of the multiverse, exploring dusty old tomes, scouring ancient cracked scrolls, poring over mottled manuscripts, and tirelessly listening to other experts in their respective fields. No piece of knowledge was too obscure to be brought to light and filed away to satisfy your curiosity. Your studies can be a means to an end, or else in the pursuit of some other ideal, which you can decide. It could be for good, bad, or as far as most people are concerned, indifferent. You are knowledgeable and hopefully also wise, and you get the same buzz from learning as others do from combat, ale, or personal attention. You can roll a d8 to determine your area of scholarly training from alchemist, astronomer, discredited academician, librarian, professor, researcher, wizard's apprentice, and scribe. You get the researcher feature. Even if you do not know a piece of information or are unable to recall it, you most likely know where to look or who to consult to find it out. Usually your sources would be a library, scriptorium, university or other learned sage, but it may be that you have contacts in a more vocational faction and could consult with friends in artisanal guilds or similar. 
most sages take to a life of adventuring in order to root out some difficult-to-obtain piece of knowledge or perhaps some great secret. It may be that you seek knowledge forbidden to you during your time studying, or you have chanced upon some tantalising morsel that suggests some long-lost artefact that was assumed to be folklore or legend in fact exists. Perhaps you believe a theory that is not considered to be worthy of academic study and have left the comfort of tenure to pursue your passion free of the bonds of traditional academia. The disgraced academician would be great for this. In any case, you have packed up your essential books and scrolls, spent some time studying the arts of combat or magic, and otherwise prepared yourself for a life that promises both peril and new knowledge in equal measure. Stat block. You are proficient in arcana and history. You know two languages of your choice. Perhaps your second language was learned as it ties directly into that which you seek. Equipment. A bottle of black ink and a quill. A small knife. A letter from a dead colleague posing a question that you haven't as yet been able to answer. A set of common clothes and, as usual, a pouch containing ten gold pieces. As an exercise... Why not write the letter from your colleague to yourself, posing the question that could form the major part of your ongoing study, or perhaps just a side quest? Monster Menagerie The hawk-eared, or perhaps bat-eared among you, may have noticed that we've been doing the Monster Menagerie in alphabetical order, starting with Aracocra, Beholder, and then Carrion Crawler. Well, now we're on D. And what better monster in Dungeons and Dragons than the Displacer Beast? No, I'm kidding. It's dragons. I'm not going to do a monster menagerie this week. And the reason is dragons is a huge topic in Dungeons and Dragons, as you might expect. So what instead I'm going to do is I'm going to do a bonus episode just about dragons next week. So I guess we'll skip now on to Lore Academy. Lore Academy. The Harpers. The Harpers is an ages-old secret organisation that has kept going despite having many setbacks over the centuries, including being completely shattered and disbanded on several occasions. Founded over a millennium ago, it is a grassroots operation with a decentralised command structure that prizes autonomy and self-reliance of its agents. When a Harper agent gets into trouble, they do not expect help from the group, but try to resolve their own issues, although they are dedicated to helping each other in times of need. Friendships between members are said to be unbreakable. The Harpers have cells and lone agents throughout Faerun who interact and share information with each other as necessary. The main tenet of the Harpers is fair treatment for all. They are uninterested in power, wealth or glory. Their beliefs include that there is no such thing as too much information, that too much power leads inexorably to corruption, and that no one should be powerless. They also aim to preserve history, including ancient art and music, and aim to maintain a balance between civilization and nature by ensuring that kingdoms remain small. Their ideal is based after the Elven Empire of Mithdranor in part due to the fact that the conception of the Harpers was begun by several Mithranan elven military leaders. It was led by the mage Dathlu Mistwinter, and the council included Elminster Aumar. 
The harper's symbol, that of a silver harp between the horns of a crescent moon, was taken from Mistwinter's family crest. They are master spies using subterfuge disguises and secret identities to form alliances, find out information and manipulate others into doing their will. They often ally with druid circles of the north using bards and rangers as go-betweens to serve a common purpose. A harper member could reasonably expect a druid circle to feed and house them temporarily and give them a forum to speak at meetings if they wish. Not all druids are friendly towards the harpers, however, with some espousing the opinion that they tend to interfere too much and threaten the natural balance. Many northern bards are also allied with the harpers, although they tend not to advertise the fact. Most northern folk would be as likely to ask a bard for help with an issue as a wandering fighter. Unfortunately, this is a double-edged sword, as some enemies of the harpers assume that all bards are members. Their goals are to gather information throughout all of Faerun, gain knowledge of the political dynamics of each region or realm, and promote fairness and equality by covert means, only acting openly as a last resort. They aim to take down any leader, government or group that becomes too powerful, especially those of a tyrannical nature. They aid the weak, the poor and the oppressed. The Harper Code Harpers work against evil and villainy wherever it is found, but must be mindful of the consequences of their actions. All beings should be able to walk free of fear and live their lives as they wish. The rule of law aids peace and fosters freedom, so long as those laws are just and those who enforce them are lenient and understanding. No extreme can be good. For freedom to flourish, it all must be in balance. The powers of the realms, the boundaries of the cities and wilds, and the influence of one being over another. A harper will do whatever it takes. Pride never rules our true harper's deeds. Freedom is a universal right, though harpers can spare themselves less freedom than those they work to protect when needed. Harpers police their own. A harper who hears the call of personal power can no longer hear the sweet song of the harp. A harper who seizes power and holds it above all else is a traitor to the harp. Traitors must die for freedom to live. Without a past, no being can appreciate what they have and where they may be going. The Infamous Elminster Almar Known as the Sage of Shadowdale, Old Mage, Stinkbeard and other epithets, Elminster is usually depicted as a hoary old wizard of pointy hat, smoking meerschaum pipe that continually blowed a vile-smelling blue or green smoke, and long grey beard of the Gandalf-slash-Merlin template. He is famous throughout the Forgotten Realms, partly by reputation that he has engineered and spread himself. He is listed not only as a wizard, but a fighter, rogue, and cleric too. Talk about a Gary Stew. A chosen of Mistra, he carries some of the goddess's silver fire within him, granting him access to powers beyond most wizards' reach. Generally described as witty and clever, with a distinguishing hawk-like nose, he is considered one of the most powerful wizards in Faerun, as evidenced by his ability to bypass the wards of Blackstaff Tower, teleporting directly inside, which Kelvin asserted he was the only wizard able to do. The spells Elminster's Multiple Mouths, 
Elminster's evasion, and Elminster's effulgent epiration, perhaps rather obviously, are credited to him as his creations as one might expect. Originally created by Ed Greenwood, the originator of the Forgotten Realms themselves, Elminster stars in a series of novels also by Ed, including Elminster in Mithranor, Elminster's Daughter, and Elminster in Hell. Elminster also often contributed to Dragon Magazine in articles penned by Greenwood as a wise sage dispensing lore and knowledge to readers, including the Ecology of series, where he discussed monsters such as the Ecology of the Ochre Jelly, and Pages from the Mages articles where he discussed spells, their usage and effects, amongst others. Elminster is a natural storyteller and actor, and despite his charm, he also has a darker side, which occasionally manifests as a trickster-like personality. He can also be grave, terrible, stern, or any of a number of archetypes, depending on who he is, who he is around and his objectives at the time. A founder member of the Harpers, he also counts among his allies the Knights of Mithranor and other chosen of Mistra, and his scribe, Leo. Over 1,200 years old, Elminster was born in 212DR to Ethelin and Amarilthael. Amarilthael? Yeah. Elthrin was lord of the village of Heldon and a prince under the kingdom of Athalanthar. Athalantar. Good grief, this, I've picked such a difficult topic to pronounce. Elminster was the sole survivor of an attack by the mage lord Undal, an evil shapeshifter known, known as a Mullagrim, or Malorgrim. Oh, good grief, there's another one. Age 12, Elminster took his father's broken sword, the Lion Sword, and became a brigand and thief. With a reluctance of killing, he instead turned his talents to burglary, becoming known as Hastal in the capital city of Athalantar as Aladar the Dark, with his gang the Velvet Hands, who he formed with his accomplice Fahl, in opposition of another gang, the Moonclaws, who worked for the mage lords that Elminster despised blaming all mages for the deaths of his parents, particularly the mage lords. This hatred led to him turning down an offer of magical training from Dorgon Stonecloak. Oh my goodness, I'm really going to have to try this. Okay, hang on. Uh, Himilolothar. 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 Oh, blimey. The magister at the time. Dorgon Stonecloak Himilolothar. You try it. Eventually he was visited by Mistra, goddess of magic, and she persuaded him to learn magic. Mistra changed his gender for a while, allowing him to become a priestess of Mistra and avoid the enemies he gained during his times as a miscreant. Training under an avatar of Mistra, Mirjala Taithlin, known as Dark Eyes, I might just use Dark Eyes from now on if it's alright with you guys, Elminster was turned male again by a spell from the ancient archmage Ander. Elminster continued to train with Majala until he was powerful enough to take revenge on the Mage Lords and claim the throne of Athalantar until he found himself ill-suited for kingship and abdicated to Helm Stoneblade, a friend and knight of the kingdom. Leaving the kingdom, Elminster and Majala were attacked by Undal, now Mage Royal, and Majala revealed herself to be Mistra herself. She asked Elminster to be one of her chosen and he agreed. Elminster continued his studies under a cruel but powerful wizard in the ancient el elven city of Comanthor, 
for over two decades and was present when the city changed to Mithranor when the mythic was raised. After a century trapped in stasis in a tomb, Elminster emerged in 759 DR to a world with unreliable magic and had to return to his old ways of surviving by his wits. He succeeded in several challenges and tests set by Mistra, and later there are reports of his having a hand in setting up the city of Waterdeep and possibly its system of lords. He also played a key role in setting up the Rangers 3. During the time of Troubles, Elminster suffered a loss of power due to Mistra being unavailable, same as most other mages. During this time, Elminster defended Shadowdale against Bane, the greater deity of fear, hatred and tyranny, along with an army of Zentarim, a group with almost opposite goals to the Harpers. Elminster used a spell to banish Bane, but was taken as well and transported to another plane of existence for some time, leading people to believe he had been killed. After more adventures, including a stint in Hell, as previously mentioned, being rescued by the symbol, Alasra Silverhand, one of the sisters, seven sisters, and sister to Lariel Silverhand, whose explorer's kit you can hear about in the news section of our first episode. Then with the death of Mistra in the Spell Plague, go back to episode three for more on this, The lack of power and mind-altering effects of trying to cast spells left him teetering on the edge of sanity and trying to save the symbol's sanity in return by trying to obtain artefacts known to contain the spirits of the Nine, a powerful band of adventurers led by Lariel. To do this, he ventured into the royal palace and during one of these excursions, his body was destroyed by Manshoon, the founder of the Zentarim, who had been secretly whittling away at Elminster's defences for years. Elminster managed to survive in a near-dead state. His essence was put into the body of one of his descendants, Aramoon Whitewave. Later, thanks to the symbol sacrifice, he regained his old body and stopped Manshoon's claim to the throne of Suzale. After Mistra was restored, he returned to Waterdeep, aiding Lariel Silverhand. Whatever magic one doth weave, tis never ever wise to deceive. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks very much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can email me at icastpod at gmail.com and tell me what you think is working or what's not working about the podcast. You can join the Discord server, although I need to get a new link up for that, so you'll have to check the show notes for the link. Or find us on Twitter or Instagram at icastpod. I create all the content you see and hear on the show and social media, except for some of the sound effects, which come from Sirenscape, because great games require great sounds. Check the show notes for the link. If you'd like to help support the show, there are ways to do that. Firstly, subscribe. Secondly, leave us a review on iTunes if you're a user. Reviews there really help the show get heard by new fans. Heard? Heard. Until next time, my friends. May Timora bless your endeavours.